Terran Sevea chanced upon part of a Jawi epistle in the debris of a graveyard in Singapore in 2010. The epistle was believed to have been written by Abdullah al-Aidarus, a descendant of a woman named Siti Maryam al-Aidarus. Siti Maryam, who died in the middle of the 19th century, was widely venerated as a patrilineal descendant of Muhammad, a Sayyidah, and as one of the Awliya. She was also a Pawang with a respectable Sufi pedigree. Her shrine was located in the center of a Muslim burial ground of 99 graves in a riparian settlement along the banks of one of the oldest harbors of Singapore. Taran first visited her shrine three weeks before it was scheduled to be demolished. He met the shrine's custodian and resident Bomo, a man named Muht ibn Hassan. Amongst believers from Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, India, Pakistan, and Hadramaut, Muht Hassan was popularly known as Wak Ali Jangut, or the Bearded Ali. According to Wak Ali, he had visited Siti Maryam's grave in the early 1970s only to be hurled from the earth of her burial ground into waters of the river that flowed by it. While Waq Ali's corporeal body drowned in the water, his corporeous body was guided by Siti Maryam into the imaginal world, Alam Misal, and then taken onto what some of his followers would describe as a mi'raj, an ascension to heaven. Waq Ali emerged from the water unharmed after seven days and spent the next 16 years disciplining his external body, and partaking in extraordinary rites of asceticism and abstinence to refine his inner heart, spirit, and self. Siti Maryam's shrine was demolished and exhumed in April 2010 to make way for a road and riverfront sport and recreation hub. Many of her votaries were present the day the cemetery was destroyed. At the moment when a miracle-working tree at the center of Siti Maryam's shrine was being sawed down, the Bomo Wakali screamed out to the believers to remember another mournful moment in Islamic history, when Muhammad's grandson was beheaded by kafirs, infidels. While giving his rendition of Hussein's martyrdom, Wakali faced what was left of Siti Maryam's grave. He evoked memories of how painful that moment in history had been for Muhammad's female descendants who had accompanied Hussein to Karbala. For following the path taken by Muhammad, Ali and Hussein, these women were humiliated by having their veils stripped off their heads and paraded as prisoners of war by Hussein's murderers. Following this sermon, the Bomo reassured his listeners that in spite of all of that, those who had followed them had emerged stronger than before. The sacred landscape rapidly became unrecognizable as the shrine complex was torn down. When Wakali saw that debris from the shrine had been left in a large garbage dumpster, he asked Terin and others to climb into the dumpster to extract any remains he had been unable to conserve. As they scavenged through layers of leaves, soil, metal, bricks, gravestones, artworks, and fragments of other documents from the shrine complex, some of Wakali's companions found damaged pages of a Jawi epistle that had till now apparently survived as a longer manuscript. Although Wakali could not read the manuscript, he enthusiastically helped Terran piece together tattered pages before and after the dumpster and its remains were taken away. Salam and welcome to the Indian Ocean series of the Ajam podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Stevenson, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ali and Rustin. Hey, guys. Hello, everyone. The adapted excerpt you just heard is from Miracles in Material Life, Rice, or Traps and Guns in Islamic Malaya, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press and written by Dr. Terence Savea. 
a favorite of ours here at Ajem. Dr. Savea is an assistant professor of Islamic studies at the Harvard Divinity School and a scholar who has published widely on the Islamic connections of the Indian Ocean world. Taryn, thanks for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. It's such an honor and privilege to be here and be able to speak about my book. So Taryn, you have the distinct uh, honor and responsibility of of introducing the listeners of this podcast to the eastern half of the Indian Ocean. Um, The ones that we've done so far that have been very much centered around the water have been on the western shores. So can you take a minute and introduce us? What are the locations, the the topics, the discussions and, and debates briefly that you're touching on in your book? The main issues that I want to deal with in this book was how production, the extraction of resources, the uses of technology was entwined in with the knowledge of charismatic religious workers. And what I was trying to understand here was how charismatic religious authority was intertwined with socioeconomic activities and what I would define as material life. I mean, I was largely looking at manuscripts, textual traditions of of men and women who were were enjoyed appellations including Pawang, Bomo, Guru, Sheikh, Sheikha, etc. in the past. And, and I was trying to understand how, for the matter, these miracle workers were very much integral to socioeconomic worlds and activities and, and material life on the whole. And on one hand, when I was looking at these manuscripts and textual traditions, I was also sitting down with, with contemporary miracle workers and spirit mediums who still live and thrive in the Malay world. And one thing I was trying to do in this process was bring together my fieldwork and the study of texts, trying to understand how Islam and Sufism was operationalized within so- the socioeconomic worlds of the past and the present. I was trying to understand through my research in this book project. And I, I hope, and I really humbly hope that, that through doing all this, through studying this world of these miracle workers, spirit mediums, healers, uh, ritual specialists, these Pawangs and Bomos of the past and the present, that I have made a humble contribution to the study of Islam and Sufism in Southeast Asia and the Notion world. Taran, I appreciate you coming onto the show. It's, it's good to have you back on. If you could talk a little bit more about why is Java so important? Like why, what is happening in the Eastern Indian Ocean in terms of like its history? Like who's traveling around it? Why were the like Indonesian Straits so important? Some of the largest Muslim populations in the world exist in the region we currently find in Southeast Asia. And, and I mean, Indonesia for the matter is the largest Muslim population in the world. But it's, it's still kind of bizarre that, that this region figures very marginally within Islamic studies in the whole. And, and it's, it's, I mean, one of the contributions that has been made by a, a generation of Southeast Asian scholars is trying to understand how for the matter this region was Islam developed in this region. How I mean, how this region was inc- gradually and increasingly Islamized or for the matter how Islam was acculturated or translated into this region. And we, what we have is we have inherited the works of scholars that, that actually not only look at Southeast Asian texts and Southeast Asian context to understand the spread of Islam in Southeast Asia, but even look towards the Western Indian Ocean world where for, by the 13th and 14th century, there were references to a Muslim Jawa or Jawis in terms of the peoples of Southeast Asia. But but in, in spite of this uh, work and in spite of all these efforts that were made to put Southeast Asia on the map of Islamic studies, I mean, it's, it's still very common for Southeast Asia to be marginalized 
And if I could borrow the words of Shahab Ahmed, it's still common to assume that Javanese Islam, or, or if I could stretch it, Malay Islam, is assumed to be less than pure Islam. This is largely because of an, a certain assumption that Islam practiced in the, the Malay world and Java, for that matter, is a syncretic form of Islam that's an admixture or a, or a, sync- or a syncretic mixture of pre-Islamic traditions and, and that Muslims are not really Muslim. And I, I know it sounds absurd, but it is a reality that, that this is uh, Muslims and Islam in this part of the world and don't drawing that much attention as they should. The world that you're describing is so fascinating. As early as the late 14th and early 15th century in Arabia and other areas, we start to see that there are people from Jawa already itinerant around the Islamic world. So before we can switch to sort of thinking in this large sense, I mean, things happen with people, right? So who is the star of this show? Who are these people that are named uh, Pawang or Bomo? That's a great question. And that's exactly what I was getting at because these men and women, these Pawangs and Bomos were not operating in in one of a better term, exotic places, you know, they were, they were operating in, in, in workplaces, work sites, places of industry. They were operating in mines, uh, rice fields, forests, all kinds of other spaces in the past and the present. So the example of the mines, I mean, what we saw was when Bomos were, and these Pawans were operating within mines, they were performing miracles. I mean, their lives for that matter were Brilliant examples how miracles and spirits were embedded into the phenomenology of labor. I mean, a pawang in uh, late 19th century Malay, I mean, the, the largest producer of tin for that matter would be prospecting for ore, would be extracting ore, would be implementing sharia in the mines, dis- disciplining workers through, through performing as a miracle workers and through communicating with spirits in the minds, very much showing how labor and the supernatural was inextricably connected. So that makes me really curious about where their knowledge comes from. What are the, what are the sources? What are the kind of necessary uh, references that they all have to make? Are there sort of broad general Islamic references and are there local references that they, they use to support their, their credentials? We have inherited textual traditions from Pawangs. So for the matter, I mean, the Pawangs, some of the manuscripts I worked with were genealogies of these Pawangs and Bomos. And these in these genealogies, we, we had an understanding of how their ilmu or their aesthetic knowledge or ilm was passed down across generations. There will be elaborate genealogies of how their ilm was passed down from prophets and Sufi masters to these pawangs in, in um, modern Malaya. Beyond that, there, were, there are some elaborate genealogical accounts of pawangs that were preordained with salvific knowledge at the very moment of the creation of Nur Muhammad. Now, but, but on the other hand, I mean, while pawangs were, were, as some of these genealogical texts suggest, and many other pawang traditions of the past and present suggest, were Pawangs also indulge in a laborious process of disciplining their bodies. So, Pawangs of the past and the present, and including the Pawangs that I was privileged to sit with in the Malay world, dedicated decades of their life to disciplining their bodies. And this was because of the reason that they were convinced that it was only through disciplining their bodies and decades of all kinds of processes from abstinence down to kinds of ascetic exercises that they will be able to cultivate their inner selves and inner soul and as such be able to actually embody 
esoteric knowledge and perform as miracle workers, spirit mediums, healers, ritual specialists? Something that's been on my mind as I've been listening to you speak, Taryn, is these points where the other realm sort of meets the earth. Um, and what, you know, when you say, when you talk about banishing a spirit, what does that look like? One of the things that I was really excited about as I started reading these manuscripts of these Pawangs of the past was they were very preoccupied with spirits or other understudied actors of the Indian Ocean world and Indian Ocean history. And one of the things that I think was quite obvious here was that in the same way that Indian Ocean societies or, or Malay societies were, were diverse, I mean, that diversity was also mirrored in the world of spirits. And uh, I mean, one of the things that, that these texts reminded me, I mean, and beyond that, the living traditions transmitted by, by Pawangs in, live in the Malay world today and I was privileged to sit with was that how diverse and multiverse of spirits were. I mean, there were Asian spirits, there were African spirits, East African spirits in this world of spirits. There were, there were even European and American spirits in that world. And one of the things that I was trying to understand was, was this multiverse of spirits and, and going in terms of your question, how do we understand uh, the process of communication, communicating with spirits, and and this ritual scape of the Pawangs? And I mean that, that I mean I could I could just spend uh, most of this conversation going on into the diversity of the ritual scape because that really was there's so much detail in that that in in that world of rituals of Pawangs. But but if I could just focus here on the rituals of conversations, a number of these manuscripts would would actually compiled conversations that Pawangs had with spirits on the frontier or conversations that Pawangs would have at various in, in various socioeconomic worlds and contexts. In these rituals of communication, Pawangs would speak to spirits uh, or beyond that, speak to the inner spiritual realities of animals and technologies because, I mean, there were, there were inner spiritual realities of material objects and the Pawangs would either speak would speak to these spirit spiritual realities and in these conversations remind these spirits about how they were knowledgeable of the genealogies, the backgrounds and the origins of these spirits. Now beyond that, in this process of conversations, they will invite the spirits to enter relationships with them, with the Pawangs, or become friends of the Pawangs and draw them into contractual relationships. And these relationships will be binding upon spirits to perform work. So they'll be propitiated, invited into relationships, mobilized to perform as workers. But on the other hand, if they refuse to perform as workers, they will issue threats. Threats of being treasonous against the Pawang and beyond that, treasonous against Prophet Muhammad, God, and threatened with very, very violent repercussions for treason, which was an odious crime. Now, of course, all work could only proceed through collaboration with spirits. So for the matter, while the, any work was believed to only proceed with armies of collaborative spirits, to even use a technology of, to tame or a wild animal for that matter. I mean, armies of collaborative spirits were, were mobilized by the Pawang. And beyond that, the Pawang would even communicate with belligerent spirits and want, and try to draw them into a contractual relationship or work but upon refusing, uh, attack those spirits very violently. 
And I mean, this and this these processes of I'm mean, I mean, perhaps not doing any justice to the the sophistication of these rituals of conversation, but I did want to point out here that that these rituals of conversation operated in multiple socioeconomic worlds, and a number of those socioeconomic worlds I, I I have alluded to, whether it's the mines, forests, rice fields, in processes from forest clearing, rice production, mining, elephant trapping, gun expertise, and for the matter, they operate even in the present. I think one of the things I've been privileged to do over the past few years is to sit with living pawangs and listen to their rituals of communicating with all kinds of animals. One of the pawangs that I've 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 mentioned in my work for the matter, I was privileged to listen to him communicating with animals, including mosquitoes, where he would protect his his followers by warning warning dangerous dengue harboring or, or other mosquito-borne illnesses harboring mosquitoes that they would they should avoid his followers and and he invited them into friendships but upon refusing friendships they were threatened with violent threats and according to his followers he had the powers of slicing these mosquitoes dead with his fingernails you know all you're discussing here is like you know you're finding manuscripts you're you read this you read that and it really just makes me um interested in your sources and how these colonial ethnographers were writing these stories of pawangs and spirits and kind of explain like their thoughts uh, about their encounters with this like let's say unseen realm and trying to rationalize it if you can talk a little bit about that that'd be that'd be really great i mean a number of colonial ethnographers actually were very very concerned about documenting the traditions of these pawangs and there are two two aspects of this um on the one hand i mean there were a number of colonial ethnographers that admittedly, I mean, we've inherited their writings, were, were concerned in, and I mean, this is expressed in language that we, that is very inappropriate today, where they were concerned that, that these are uh, autochthonous or native, if I could say in inverted commas, in inverted commas, native traditions were, were diminishing. And the, the, the fear of these colonial ethnographers was that these native traditions were diminishing as civilization or Western civilization was spreading in the Malay world with the coming, with the, the entrenchment of colonial systems and uh, the spread of colonial knowledge and modernity. You know? But, but and, and therefore what we saw was a number of colonial ethnographers were particularly invested in the process of employing scribes, munchies, uh, and beyond that, surrounding themselves with, with informants, interviewers, and at times even detectives, as I, I I, I found to to investigate the traditions of these pawangs, bomos, and and document that. Now, in this process of this collaboration, what we often found was that colonial ethnographers and their their Malay Muslim intermediaries or Muslim intermediaries were very actively not only compiling the traditions of pawangs, but even collecting and reproducing manuscripts that were were compiled in other. Other spaces, including the including the libraries of courtiers, at times Sufi shrines, etc. And therefore, I mean, there are there are quite a number of the manuscripts I was working with were very actively compiled to this process that that a scholar like Nilgin would refer to as a terrain of exchange between between uh, Europeans and Asians operating within this world. Now, what was quite striking here was that. In spite of some of the language used by colonial ethnographers to describe miracle workers, pawangs, bomos, spirit mediums as magicians, 
And beyond that, the uh, inappropriate language used by colonialographers to describe Malay magic, for that matter, as being primitive in open inverted commas. And even if I could use another term that actively comes up in the works of some colonialographers, savage. What was striking in spite of this language at times was because of their investment in, in collecting the traditions of these Pawangs, they clearly became close companions of number Pawang. So I was quite surprised in the course of my work to find uh, manuscripts written in the hand of Pawangs. And one of the things that, that we've been quite privileged to inherit is, is some, some manuscripts that were shared by Pawangs with his colonial graphers and, and found their way into certain archives. And uh, beyond that, I mean, I've, I've also been privileged to read manuscripts written in the hand of Pawangs that were compiled in and preserved within shrine libraries and other private collections. And, and throughout this, you find an occasional mentions of some of these colonial anographers in the notes attached to these manuscripts by Pawangs of the 19th century and early 20th century. And what was striking at times was some of these colonial anographers, in, in spite of the language they used earlier that I've, I have struggled with is that the colonial ethnographers were occasionally described as close companions of the Pawangs. They were described as the Sahabat companions of the, the Pawangs. And on the other hand, it, your other question in terms of, of were colonial ethnographers convinced about what these Pawangs uh, did and whether, the, whether their methods were efficacious, it's, that's, that's a slightly, this is slightly more complicated one because on one hand, I mean, I think it's, it was quite universal that, that the, the ethnographers that, that worked on these pounds and even collected their traditions would all actively, uh, use language to describe magic and, uh, the primitive ways of these pounds. But on the other hand, would, would not mince their words when it came to the efficacy of these methods, be they primitive or, or backward, I mean, their terms. So just, just to give you an example for that matter, it was very common of, of a number of these colonial ethnographers to, to describe these Pawangs as, as not mere charlatans. Right? And what I mean here was that you've, I found multiple mentions of not only colonial ethnographers, but, uh, but other, I mean, administrators for that matter, describing the efficacy of these Pawangs and their, their, their primitive, so-called primitive methods within the world of mining for that matter. And beyond that, I mean, we, I would also find some of these ethnographers describing these pounds are not charlatans to the eyes of materialists for that matter and describing the fact that the hunting and fishing pawangs were, were expert hunters. I mean, indeed, this was evident in the case of the first British resident of Malacca who would in the early 19th century dozens of elephants for the residency. And uh, uh, for, to capture elephants, he indeed employed a pawang who would capture 62 elephants for the British residency and be paid $100 each for each elephant captured. So it's, as I, I said, it's a slightly complicated question because I mean, clearly this is a world where even these, these European ethnographers, scholar administrators were, were dependent on these pawangs for various activities. How do they view you? Do they view you as a Western scholar? Do they view you as their disciple? What is it like? Do weird things happen to you? One of the things that I really feel from this project was that I was privileged to sit with Pawangs. I think that a good decade of sitting with, with living Pawangs and Bomos for that matter and gurus has, has actually trained me as a researcher. I mean, what I'm saying here is that when I went, when I first started sitting down with Pawangs and Bomos, 
I mean, I I grew up in the Malay Peninsula. I, I mean, I was born in Singapore. And I grew up, as I often said, in a world of miracle workers. And I was surrounded by these miracle workers, these pawangs and bomos. But but even studying them, it was when I, I actually got down to studying these men and women that I realized that my academic approaches were limited. And therefore, I think it's a, I mean, it was a privilege. I mean, one of the things that happened was very, very quickly in this project, I realized that I could not actually study these men and women as an op- omniscient observer. I was soon reminded, as I sat down in Pawangs and Bumas, that some of the questions I was asking were very deeply academic questions and I was missing some level of spirituality that was embedded in these things. So there was always that that distance that it would emerge. But beyond that, I think what I gained in that process was in terms of, of teaching me methods of how to read and study miracles in the past and the present. Of course, I mean, I would be sitting down with Pawangs and Bomos and sitting through seances, etc. And I, I, of course, I mean, they would, they would remain and until now, they remain disappointed with me that I would not be able to send spirits and see them, hear them or smell them. I mean, I could only hear spirits speaking in the, in the bodies they possessed for that matter. But on the other hand, I mean, one of the things that, that I was often taught to do was to, to take miracles much more seriously. I mean, after a decade of sitting down in Pawangs and Bomos, I cannot... I cannot actually, as a student of miracles, operate in a frame like I believe some uh, some scholars continue operating in. Perhaps the, the, the scholars were more academically informed, perhaps, <laughs> in terms of thinking of miracles as in like understanding communities where miracles occur and accounting for those miracles meticulously, but stepping back and, and taking a position in terms of saying that, oh, we can account for miracles and why they occur in the community and, and account for why, why that community might believe in miracles and step back and say that we know better and attribute it to some other structural reason. I think one of the things that sitting down with Pawangs often and Bomos was, was taught me was to take miracles and their methods very, very seriously. To give you an example of where I came in from, and I'm, I'm rather embarrassed at points if I reflect on when I started this project. I mean, when I, in the early days of this project, a decade ago precisely, was that I actually met a Pawang in the island of Pulau Panyangat. And that's uh, the south of Singapore, uh, in the Riau Archipelago. And I, I was having a conversation and, and probing this Pawang about a Pawang in the early 20th century that I was searching for information about that Pawang was prominent in in, in cities including Singapore and I, I could not find any information of him and this Pawang actually spoke to me and uh, provided me like quite detailed biographical information about Pawang and when I asked him I said where, what were your sources for this information on this Pawang that was prominent in the early 20th century and this this Pawang in uh, Panyangat would told me that he had attained the information from his his communication with the the unseen beings of the Rajal Al Ghayab, and I, as a, I mean, I'm I'm quite embarrassed to admit this. At that moment of time, I I just I I took it down with full detail as a as a good. I felt I was good ethnographer. I was a good ethnographer in taking every detail down, recording everything he said. But as I went back, I didn't believe it. What would happen was that I I believed it as a a tradition that he was convinced about, right? And it was striking that just 
two months later, I would find precisely similar information in archival sources that I was more familiar with, written archival sources, Western written archival sources. And that convinced me that that material is true. But what that reminded me was that my initial urge as a scholar was of these traditions at that moment of time was to dismiss these traditions and search for veracity in other traditions. So I was trying to, I, I think over the years, I have I have become convinced that, that I need to develop better historical methods of understanding these traditions of the past and present. You're talking about these figures who are the very agents and repositories of the traditions of Islamization. And since the colonial period, their tie to Islam, and in fact their own Islam, has been questioned, first by colonizers, then by a sort of polite society who have new racialized notions of what real Islam is. But these figures are still alive. Sometimes, you know, we, we're so used to lost worlds that we forget that just because we've lost something, it doesn't mean that everyone has lost it. And in fact, like, how, how do they th- themselves see their place not only in their society today, but in the future. Are they as bothered about loss as we are? My suspicion is no, right? I think you're, you're completely right. The Islamic credentials are questioned. And one of the things that I found was that as even in the course of my research, I mean, there were some Bawangs and Bomos who were, were very consciously asserting their Islamic credentials, even at times using appellations that sounded, that, that in their mind would, would appeal to an believed to be an Islamic audience much more. But on the other hand, uh, their role in society is still immense. I mean, for that matter, I mean, they, they're still prominent in the societies that I studied in the past. And I do want to highlight here is in following what you said, that they're not facets of a, a lost world. They haven't faded into a, a kind of, like borrow the words of a scholar, folkloric oblivion. They're well alive in these societies and they're actively playing roles in healing society. These Pawangs and Bomos, I mean, still self-consciously look upon themselves as prominent actors of, of, of Islam and Sufism and as healers of society. And I mean, in the book, I allude to how the, the Pawangs were traveling across the world and, and even in prominent within American cities and playing a role in healing uh, societies. But beyond that, I mean, there are Pawangs who operate through all kinds of, of innovative spaces, including one Pawang whose work I have mentioned in my book, who operates through art galleries and heals through his artworks. I mean, just, I guess, I guess, it's, I just want to point out that these men and women are still prominent in societies. They're, they're still existing and they remind us about the interconnections of miracles and material life, connections that we often would like to forget. Thank you so much for coming and joining us, Taryn. Thanks, Taryn. It was fantastic. Thank you, Taryn. Thank you so much for having me here. March 8th, 2014. Malaysian Airlines passenger flight MH370 departed as usual from Kuala Lumpur International Airport at 12.41 a.m., only to disappear from air traffic control radar screens at 1.19 a.m. By August 2015, as investigations by the world's leading aviation experts seemed increasingly futile, Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak bemoaned that the fact that MH370's disappearance remained a mystery. The search for Flight MH370 was eventually called off on the 17th of January, 2017, shortly after MH370 went missing. A miracle worker and spirit medium, a Bomo or a Pawang, 
from the Malaysian state of Perak claimed to know what had happened. Ibrahim Matzin enjoyed multiple appellations as the Raja Bomo, the chief miracle worker, the Dato, or the elder of a Sufi lineage and Mahaguru of a Islamic martial arts organization. On the 10th of March, 2014, he visited Kuala Lumpur International Airport to join the search for flight MH370. While at the airport, he chanted Quranic verses and searched the skies for the missing aircraft with bamboo binoculars. He also used the rattan replica of the plane supplemented by coconuts, fish traps, and hooks to conduct his investigation. He then declared that the flight had been hijacked by spirits and had entered an unseen world. The Raja Bomo called upon the 100,000 members of his cult to read the 36th chapter of the Quran and encouraged believers to pray as he continued to search for MH370. A few days later, he claimed that the aircraft would be spotted on an island. When the flaperon was later found on the island of Reunion, he expressed disappointment with the Prime Minister for failing to recognize that his search operations were more effective than those of aviation experts. The Raja Bomo was also disturbed by what he perceived as unwarranted reactions to his assistance by Islamic jurisprudential authorities and representatives of Islamic departments of state in the federal constitutional monarchy of Malaysia. By April 21, 2017, Islamic police arrested Ibrahim Matzin. After becoming incarcerated for five days, he was charged by the Sharia High Court of Kuala Lumpur for bringing Islam into contempt. He was subsequently released, then displayed at a press conference organized by the Islamic Religious Department of the Feudal Territories in Malaysia. Here, Ibrahim Matzin renounced his title as Raja Bomo, pleaded with Muslims and Malaysians to accept his thousands of apologies, and appeared to confess that all of his customary practices were heretical innovations. The erstwhile Bomo was released on parole after this press conference. Some months later, though, it was apparent that Ibrahim Matzin had recovered his confidence after the crackdown by authorities and his imprisonment. On April 2018, he announced that he was putting himself forward as a candidate for a parliamentary seat in the general elections, surrounded by his followers with a banner that still called him the chief Bomo of Malaysia. And two years later, on March 20th, 2020, he made headlines again, performing a ritual on YouTube using a globe and a mini telescope that he said belonged to his grandfather, turmeric rice, and paddy barong, along with pandan, screw pine leaves, dipped inside a bowl of water. He claimed that the ritual will create a shield around Malaysia that will protect the nation from diseases, all the while urging them to wash their hands, nostrils, earlobes, faces, and to wash their hands properly before entering their home.